Hello, welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number three, COVID-19 Impacts, Overview of the Claims and the Framework for Analysis. My name is Todd Hatherly, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, a leader in federal government contract training for professional development for 60 years. Every year, Federal Publication Seminars trains thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on legal, regulatory, compliance, and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are just a small sampling of our important content you can, you can find as a contracting professional from FPS programs. Whether in person or online, live or on demand, you cannot find another source with the breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. Please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today is James Newland. He is a partner with the law firm Seifarth Shaw in their DC office. Jim is not only a lawyer, but a licensed architect. Jim represents owners, general contractors, and design professionals on government and private construction contracts. Jim also teaches a variety of classroom courses on fe for federal publication seminars, as well as presenting topics of interest via webcast for FedPubs online. The impact of COVID-19 and ensuing delays and changes in the work protecting the contractor's cash flow and avoiding a default termination are now top of mind for every con construction contractor. This podcast will provide an overview of the impacts arising from COVID-19 and the claims arising from the impacts. Jim, how are you today? I'm fine, Todd. How are you? Well, wonderful, wonderful. Um, so I have a bunch of different questions I want to ask, and uh, I'm sure you have the answers for them. So let's let's get right to it. Jim, are uh, COVID-19 impacts always excuses for delayed performance? Todd, in most cases, the excuses for late performance that are listed in the delay or default clauses under the contracts that we would normally see are not considered excuses per se. That is the existence of an excusable event, whether it's COVID-19 or adverse weather or something else starts the analysis and the contractor simply takes that event, the COVID-19 impact here, and demonstrates the effect of that impact on its actual performance. There are three clauses we can look at and on the government side, it's always gonna be the FAR default clause found at 52.249-10. Under the AIA contracts and the consensus documents, it's dealt with a little bit differently. Under AIA A201 section 8.3, we don't list epidemics uh, expressly, but we do talk about events outside the control of the contractor and other things that clearly come into play with COVID-19, particularly where we've got government shuts, shutdowns or um, problems with sourcing materials or shipments from of materials from foreign countries or producing materials in factories. And in consensus docs, document 200, section six, we have a clause that's very similar to the FAR clause. Now, we gotta look at compensability under these clause and clauses and whether they're considered excusable delays or excusable and compensable delays, but that's for another, another day. But, the way the court decisions deal with this, if something's listed in the default clause or listed in the time extension clause under a private contract, that simply begins the analysis. It's not a per se excuse for late performance or a per se or, in, or de facto right to a time extension. The contractor is gonna have to take the event, the COVID-19 impact, 
and demonstrate how it impacted the project. You can imagine on a project where either um, a local government, the city of Boston, for instance, or a federal government has shut down construction projects or limited access to a particular base, even if it's for a short period of time, it's not going to be too difficult to demonstrate that some delay occurred. But that sure. burden rests with the, that burden rests with the contractor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so uh, what steps should the contractor take to demonstrate a COVID-19 related delay? Well, normally a contractor will demonstrate delay with a critical path schedule analysis. Now here, the elements of proof of delay may be stated in different ways, but in basic terms, right, in order to avoid a default termination, or on the other hand, to demonstrate delay supporting an extension of time, the contractor should, should show that its performance was in fact delayed by the epidemic without its own fault or negligence. And so construction contractors are normally um, used to demonstrating excusable delay through a time impact analysis, relying on the critical path method schedule of schedule of critical path schedule method of review. And that really doesn't change here. The one thing that I will mention is contractors shouldn't overlook delays of separate prime contractors, that is contractors who don't have a contractual relationship with the contractor, but instead they have a relationship with the owner or the government. They could be furnishing um, equipment, for instance, uh, hospital equipment, x-ray equipment, uh, that's going to be incorporated into the work of the, of the prime contractor. It could be turbines for power plants, it could be anything like that. Again, the subject matter doesn't make a difference, but the owner or the government will be responsible for the delays of its own separate contractors. And so contractors should bear that in mind and hold the owner or the government responsible for those separate contractor delays. Got it. Uh, must the COVID-19 delay be the sole delay in order to ex excuse the contractor's late performance? On a construction contract, I, I would, say definitely not. Um, the wrinkle is sometimes when you look at the epidemic cases, and there aren't many, I mean, this is not a situation that's normally presented uh, to us, right? So we don't have a lot of right. guidance from the cases, but no, the although the, the non-construction related decisions suggest that the impact of the epidemic or other excuse should be the sole cause of delay, I think those are gonna limited uh, clearly to uh, non-construction cases, because in the context of a construction delay claim, we know that concurrent delays, which for our purposes, I define as a simultaneous delay, one that's caused by the contractor and one that's caused by the government, putting it briefly, right. those types of concurrent delays will suffice to entitle the contractor to at least a non-compensable extension of, of the contract time and remission of any liquidated damages. So no, although you might read some of the non-construction board decisions to say that it needs to be, or the COVID-19 impact needs to be the sole cause of the delay. In the construction context, a concurrent delay, I think is going to be more than enough to, um, to, to, to serve as, a, an, an, as an excuse for late performance. Terminations, so let's we'll shift, shift gears a little bit here. Our, are there situations where the government or the owner may waive the right to terminate a contractor? Yes, I, and right now we're in a period of uncertainty, right? So sometimes, although we're, we're moving past that a bit because we've been in this mode for about a month now, 
but in the beginning there was a period of uncertainty and, and parties weren't sure what to do whether they were going to terminate for convenience whether there was some reason to terminate for default but if we talk about terminations for default and, and the potential waiver of that right there are some cases in fact patterns that suggest that that can occur and what what it really boils down to is what happens when the court or the board looks at the party's course of dealing right so while it appears well settled that a contract remains in force after a default until the other party the non-defaulting party elects to terminate it um, there can be fact patterns where the owner for instance or the government induces the contractor to continue performing the contractor then does that and actually incurs some costs and tries to perform and in those cases sometimes the boards will say the government has waived the right to terminate for default because it allowed or and not just allowed but induced the contractor to continue performance and the contractor actually did that it relied on that inducement and incurred costs trying to continue performance on the private side though be aware that there are some contracts that have provisions noting that a failure to invoke a contractual right shouldn't be construed or shouldn't amount to a waiver of that right or the ability to enforce it later. That said, courts are very interested in the party's course of dealing because they want to know how the parties interpreted the contract themselves. So just be careful, look at the situations because in one of the government contract cases that dealt with that issue, they looked at that course of dealing and they actually converted a termination for default into a termination for convenience of the government. So, um, you know, we're talking about performance and uh, let's say a, what, a, a key employee becomes ill and how does, what steps should a contractor take and what, how does that, their absence affect performance? Well, this is, this is one of, paramount concern to contractors, whether they're public or private these days, because it may not be the case that a job is shut down and performance continues, but one of the key employees becomes infected and has to miss work for a few days or an extended period of time. Now, first, let's talk about what type of employees. We're talking about key employees, not just important employees, but employees with key job functions, the superintendent on a construction project someone like that someone who if they miss work it's not easy for the contractor to put up someone else to immediately step in and take over and function with the same level of efficacy and efficiency all right and then just like the delay scenario we were talking about merely pointing to the illness of, of a key employee or several key employees doesn't suffice generally i think the guidance from the decisions indicates that the contractor should link the key personnel to actual duties others in the others in the organization couldn't perform uh, particularly if that contractor is a corporation and not a small business um, the contractor for instance you know should be prepared to point to facts indicating that the ill or the quarantine personnel were key to its performance and, in, and if the contract identifies certain key personnel as we would on the private side in many cases on a construction project. Again, particularly people like superintendents or particular project managers or project executives. I would certainly on the contractor side point that out. But again, contractors should explain that, that key employee's role in performing the contract 
why others could not immediately step in to fulfill that role when that employee was absent, and the contractor should link the period of absence to actual delays in performance. I think finally, don't overlook a potential claim for ramp up and learning curve costs when you have to put another employee in the place of that ill employee who is no longer on the job site. Those costs can be real and there can be some delays and inefficiencies arising from that. So don't overlook that. I, I would I would have to say that I would say one important lesson would be to document as, as you're going through this process. Absolutely. Uh, just in, as in any construction claim, certainly document the issue, practice what we call change order accounting, where we're segregating the costs that are linked to the COVID-19 impact. Again, as I tell clients, sometimes you can have the best entitlement case that you can imagine, but if it's hard to link the, the costs, right, the extra costs that are serving the basis for the equitable adjustment or damages on the private side, uh, you may be in a pickle, so to speak. Should, should the contractor owner actually uh, need to review other causes of delay? Yeah, of course. I think um, what comes to mind is 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 the prevention doctrine. And what that says briefly is a party may not use the non-performance of a condition precedent when that party is responsible for the non-performance of the condition. So translating that into practical terms on a construction project, you could see a scenario where key employees of the architect's team or the owner's team aren't available to answer RFIs, all right? And so the contractor might say, well, I couldn't get an answer to my question, my request for information, my RFI, if you will, because the architect is no longer working or the government's contracting officer or his or her representatives are no longer working because they're ill. Well, many delay experts will want to look at that, look at that chain of events and see whether the contractor or one of the contractor's subcontractors delayed in asking the question, or perhaps they delayed in making submittals and submitting shop drawings. Um, and, and those things were transmitted late or not transmitted timely so that the delay, there's partial fault for the delay. And so they would look at concurrency or whether there are sequential delays and sort through all of that before assigning all of the delay to the owner or the contractor or vice versa. Certainly contractors will wanna be proactive in mitigating delays and implementing mitigation me measures like protecting sources of supply, or as they may be faced with now, arranging for alternative sources of supply for things that are coming from overseas, thinking of marble from Italy or products from China um, right. So I think the the, the experts will want to look at mitigation and look at how um, how the impact of potential sequential or concurrent delays impacted the schedule. Jim, uh, thank you. We're out of time for today, but thank you for joining me today and uh, appreciate your insights. If uh, any of our listeners want to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Thank you, Todd. They can certainly reach me at uh, at my phone number, which is five seven one. 216-6014 or by email at j-n-e-w-l-a-n-d at s-e-y-f-a-r-t-h.com, jnewland at syfarth.com. Thanks again, Todd. I really enjoyed it.
Well, thank you. And and for all you listeners out there, if you have topics you want us to cover in a podcast, feel free to send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the farm.